I just wanted to say thank you for all the love and support. And you know, one of the beautiful things that came out of the, the wedding week was the time that we were able to spend down in California with, with family and friends. Uh, the rehearsal here I want to show you, this was six of my closest uh, friends in the world, uh, starting with my brother on the end, who was just thrilled to be doing a rehearsal there. And uh, then we have my two best friends, uh, Luke and, and Jacob, who's here with us today, uh, my, my close buddy Mike, and then on the end is my two college roommates, uh, Andrew and Levi. Now these are six guys in my life who would absolutely go to battle for me. Uh, these are, are guys who have been with me through thick and thin, and the, the joy that it was to have a week just to spend time together and, and not get arrested was really encouraging. Um, I had been doing pretty good, it's closer than you think at one night, but we, we're, we're that's not going to talk about that. I'm a pastor. Uh, I've been doing pretty good over the week emotionally, but then uh, on game day, which is what us sports guys would call the day of the wedding, um, we were in our dressing room, and uh, you know how it takes the guys like 12 minutes to get ready? Girls had been prepping since like the first Bush administration, I think it was. And uh, we, the pastor comes in, gathers all of my six friends around me, and they lay hands on me and pray for me. And it was in that moment that I just broke. I just wept like a baby. Uh, it was snot everywhere. We're hugging. We're, we're you know, to get new crossages or whatever those things. Boutonnieres? I don't know what they're called. Um... Knowing what I knew in that moment, these guys in this row are guys who were there for me in the most important moment of my life outside of coming to know Jesus. These were guys who had always been there for me and always will be there for me. Something I don't take lightly. J.C. Ryle, he says it like this, this world is full of sorrow because it's full of sin. And we know that all too well, don't we? He said it's a dark place. It's a lonely place. It's a disappointing place. They said the brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. They said that friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joy. And if you've had a true friend, you, you know what that means. Now, how many friends would you say that you have? True friends, the friends that would half your troubles and double your joys. Now, now we know we live in a culture with technology, with social media. We have never been so connected as a society, and yet we've never been so isolated. The, the trick of what does it even mean to have a friend, and often, like in social media world, like according to social, oh, oh not there yet, sorry, uh, the, uh, the Human Resources um, Administration calls what we have today a loneliness epidemic. It says that one in five Americans feel lonely or isolated. So think about that. That means 20% of the people in this room on average say that they are an island, that they don't know those kind of people that half their troubles and double their joys. So back to the, the Facebook thing. Um, how, how many friends do you have? Well, Facebook tells me that I've got 674. I'm pretty popular. <laughs> and then it turns out, first one on my list, Jill Whipperman, now Jill Frankino, has 862. So I'm married up. Come on, come on. Um, but are those, do I really have 674 people in my life who are intimate friends that I would say half my troubles and double my joys? Of course not. Most of those people are acquaintances at best. In fact, studies show that we only have the capacity for 12 truly intimate friendships in our life. Interestingly enough, that's the number. What number sticks out there? That's the number of disciples that Jesus walked with for his three years of ministry. Now, in Russia, they would say that they've got one, two, maybe three people they would truly call friends, meaning that those are people they know as well as they know themselves. 
and would be willing to die for them. That's probably a, a term we would reserve for as best friend in our culture. Now, while we can only have so many close, intimate friends, the Bible says that we need them like the air that we breathe. The first time in Scripture that it says it's not good, calls something not good, is actually before sin enters into the world. The first time we hear it's not good is when? When God said it's not good for man to be alone. That it's not good for you to be by yourself. And so he gives him what? He gives him a friend. And what is marriage if it is not at the, at the foundation a friendship, a lifelong friendship. Each of us desire this kind of relationship, friendships in our life, because that's how our creator designed us. Drew Hunter wrote a book called Made for Friendship. Interesting here is, is uh, this book was given to me by a close friend, Brad Zubek, and many of you know Brad, an elder in our church, and we just want to pause for a second here to celebrate. Uh, he had gone down to Texas to look at a tumor in the back of his leg, and praise the Lord, it was benign. It was completely removed. He is, there was no cancer, so we were praising Jesus for that, and excited to have Brad back with us, a close friend of mine. And he gave me this book called Made for Friendship. I don't know if there was any kind of like, you know, passive-aggressive like he wants me to be, you know, closer with him. I, I don't know. But he said, and this, is, this, is, this is, shows us how central friendship is. He says, friendship with one another and with God is the supreme pleasure of life, both now and forever. And no one can fully enjoy life without it. That's really putting friendship on a pedestal, isn't it? It said, history, it turns out, is nothing less than the story of how the triune God... God, in friendship with himself, friend of Father, Son, and Spirit, welcomes us into eternal friendship, relationship with himself. It says to be a Christian is to know Jesus and to be known by him as a dear friend. Friendship is central in who we were created to be. And what we're going to see this morning is in 1 Samuel, we're going to look at probably the most famous friendship in the Bible, that of David and Jonathan. Now, we often kind of picture them as two buddies that are our peers. So a lot of times you see cartoons, they look like this, right? Two pals that met each other in like Jewish nursery uh, or something, and they just kind of grew up together. But, but what we actually see in Scripture, very likely they were at least, Jonathan was at least 10 years older, maybe as much as 30 years older than David. So they're not peers, and maybe a more accurate picture would be something like this, right? <laughs> Buddies, but, you know, just different stages of life. Um, but what we do know is that they become close friends, and many have speculated, and I, I mean, I step on this eggshell, many have speculated perhaps with some of the intimate language, it even says at one point that David loved Jonathan more than any other woman in his life. And so there's this question that would arise, well, it was this more than a platonic friendship? But Jen Wilkin in the Village Church, her study, I, check, I encourage you to go to our, our website, uh, a great resource um, is, is what the Village Church did as they walked through First and Second Samuel. I've drawn a lot from um, their messages. But um, she says at that time, in that culture, nobody would even have perceived that at all. That wouldn't have been a suggestion. Now, in, in our culture today, which is highly sexualized and homosexuality becoming more and more the norm, that's a question that might arise. But at that time, there wasn't, the text doesn't even come close to suggesting that. We see things like in verse 41, they kissed one another and wept, but in the context there, it's more like what you would see in Europe today, when a, when a friend would kind of kiss each other on either side of the cheek, there was nothing erotic about it. No, what we see here is a deep, deep friendship, a friendship that's based on the covenant promises and grace of God. 
And as we're going to read this morning, my prayer is that we see what friendship truly looks like for Jonathan and David, so that we might see what God has called us into, into friendship uh, today. Now, uh, the first thing we're going to see is that there is a covenant friendship here with Jonathan and David. Verse 1 of chapter 18, majority of the text will be in the ESV translation. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. That's an intimate term. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, it doesn't say here exactly how or why the friendship started. All we know is he's heard David's words, and he goes, that's my dude. That he is drawn toward David, heart-knit with him. But we do see what the relationship starts to look like. It says in verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David. Why? Because, and they say it again, he loved him as his own soul. Now, Jesus said to summarize the law in our horizontal relationships is to love your neighbor as yourself. So we see Jonathan with a godly t- kind of love toward David as he loves himself. And because of that kind of love, he makes a, they say, covenant with him. This is kind of one of those spit shakes. It's a formal pact that he makes with David. And the concept, the Hebrew concept of covenant is this. It's a loyal commitment to look out for the other's welfare. They say, I will faithfully, through thick and thin, be looking out for your interest as much as I look out for my own interest. And we're really good at looking out for our own interests, aren't we? Ephesians 5 calls husbands to love your wife as yourself. He says, for no one ever hated his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it. If you have a scratch, you itch. You don't think about that. And they say in the same way, that's how you're supposed to love your wife. And one month in, I'm already seeing there's a learning curve, okay? It doesn't happen naturally. And then in verse 4, because of this covenant that he makes, Jonathan just starts peeling off clothes. Look at this. Verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself of, his, of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Like, what is going on here? Jonathan is just like, here, take everything. What is happening culturally, this symbolizes Jonathan is transferring the rights of his throne to David. This is his royal regalia, kind of a princely outfit. So he's saying, you're the next in line now. So, like, if I was to dub... Uh, Robbie is our next lead pastor, and we kind of had this symbolic thing, and I would, like, take off my wireless mic. <laughs> Here's my PowerPoint clicker. I bequeath to you, Robbie. Click well, son. Right? And I start taking off my polo shirt. And I, no, I wouldn't do that for you guys. You'd all be scarred for weeks and weeks. Um, what am I doing? I'm, I'm, tr- I'm symbolically transferring this role from me to Robbie. And that's exactly what's happening here. Now, imagine this for a second. David is Jonathan's biggest threat, even more than Saul, because Saul's already lost his throne. He's almost all the way through it. Jonathan's supposed to be the next in line. And Saul messes that up for him because of his own sin and disobedience. Now, here you see Jonathan willingly befriending and himself handing over his royal regalia to David to be king. Very different than his father's outlook, isn't it? We see a covenant friendship here, loyalty, and then we're going to see a careful plan that comes together. Last week we saw... Saul jealously eyed David in chapters 18 and 19. Remember the women saying after Goliath falls, David has slain ten thousands. Where Saul, they just said he he had slain thousands. And what do we see from Saul? We saw jealousy, fear, and pride. 
oozing out of him because of what David had done. And, and so he starts chucking spears at David. He puts him in a, a position in battle trying to kill David. And then finally, in chapter 19, after the third spear has been thrown at David, he goes, enough's enough. I'm out of here. And he goes on the run. And that's where we pick the story up here in chapter 20. It says, then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now David thinks, says, I'm pretty sure I'm innocent here. But he comes to Jonathan, his closest friend. Like, where do we go in our times of desperation? I know I've got four or five friends on my favorites list on my iPhone that when I'm going through difficult times, I'm calling those people first. And one of the things that David does here, he goes, David, Jonathan, is there anything in me? Is there something wrong on my end here? Because I don't think there is. But I might have some blind spots by definition that I don't see. And we need to have people in our lives, accountability to be able to go, man, I'm not seeing this thing. But you have friends. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Someone who might come alongside of you and point things out that you don't see in your life. So he comes to him and goes, am I innocent? Like, where are we at here? And in verse 2, Jonathan says to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. He goes, no, 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 no. My dad's not going to kill you. Now, back in chapter 19, Saul had told Jonathan that he wasn't going to kill David. And so Jonathan's working off of that knowledge. Bad information, but that's what he knows. So he's being honest with David. But then David vowed again, it says verse 3, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So to give the cliff notes here, David says, Your dad wants to kill me. Jonathan says, Nuh-uh. David says, Uh-huh. He just won't tell you because we're besties. It's my translation. Verse 4, then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I'll do it for you. This is that faithful love. Whatever you want, David, whatever you need, I'm here. And so they hatch a plan. David says, the next festival that's coming up, I'm going to skip out on it. And when Saul notices I'm gone, if you see that, he is, that he's cool with it, then, then I'm safe. But if he flips out, then I need to run. Spoiler alert, Saul flips out. And so then there's this swelling scene here in verse 12. I'm going to give you the New Living because it's an easier read through. But this is like in the movie where the music swells. They're on the mountaintop. Hair is blowing through Jonathan's, uh, wind is blowing through Jonathan's hair. And he gives us this stirring speech. He says, Jonathan told David, I promise by the Lord, the God of Israel, that by this time tomorrow or the next day at best, I will talk to my father and let you know at once how he feels about you. If he speaks favorably about you, I will let you know. But if he's angry and wants to kill you, may the Lord strike me and even kill me if I don't warn you so you can escape and live. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. He says, I promise I'll tell you whatever the outcome is. And then they make some words, some words of covenant, some words of promise to one another. He says, and may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Solomon made a solemn pact, or the ESV, again, would say covenant with David, saying, may the Lord destroy all your enemies. Now think about that for a minute. Who is David's central enemy? Jonathan's own father. And then verse 17, Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again, for Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. We see that language popping up again. Now, note this. 
in our sinful, fallen world, this, this, this kind of love and loyalty and friendship is not normal. We live in a world of, of pride and selfish ambition that usually looks a lot more like Game of Thrones, right? You've got the king of the hill mentality we talked about last week, people pushing and pulling on each other to get to the top to be number one. I mean, look at our own political landscape, right? People lying, people backstabbing, doing whatever, whatever they can do to get into control. And you read the rest of the history of the kings of Israel, and you're going to see the same thing. Assassinations, family turning on family. This is the exception to the rule. But what we hear from Jonathan and David is what Jenny Hamm of the Village Church calls covenants of grace. Covenants of grace because it's not required of one another, but it's made out of love for one another. Jonathan to David here is basically saying, I will be loyal to you and to your rightful throne. Now, think about that again. This should be Jonathan's throne, but the way Jenny says it, and it's so beautiful, Jonathan is not seeking a kingdom of his own, is he? And where do we hear those words down the line? The one who comes from the line of David, Jesus, said, seek first the kingdom of God. Now, according to the law of genetics, Jonathan, Saul's son, should be the next in line. But according to the will of God, because of Saul's sin, Jonathan's been removed, and now David will be placed in, a man of God's own choosing. And what Jonathan here is, that's what matters to me most. What does my God want from this situation? We are called to seek God's will over our personal ambitions. And how often am I concerned of my little kingdom more than God's will? That I might be in a position of selfish ambition, of control, instead of saying, not my will, but yours be done. David makes a commitment to Jonathan, too. He says, I will commit to you and love you, and not just you, Jonathan, but to your future descendants as well. And in a couple sermons, we're going to read the beautiful story of this coming to fruition when David comes alongside Jonathan's son, his crippled son, Mephibosheth, and shows one of the most beautiful pictures of grace that we see in Scripture. We see these covenants of grace made to each other. And so they hatch their plan. David's missing at the festival. Jonathan tells Saul. And how does Saul react, do you think? Calm, cool, and collected as always, right? (laughs) No, Saul flips out. Then Saul's anger, verse 30, was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now you think for, Jonathan's mom's going, hey, (laughs) what did I do? (laughs) Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Again, mom's like, hey. So what's going on here? And actually, read it in the New Living. Um, There might be kids here, so I won't read it, but it gets even more intense than that. Um, Jonathan, or excuse me, Saul is not calling out Jonathan's mom here. He's ultimately calling out Jonathan. And what he's saying is essentially that you must have been born from some other family. You must come from a prostitute the way you're acting. No son of mine would throw his own father under the bus like this. That's what he's communicating to Jonathan. And then listen to his words in verse 31. For as long as the king, as a son of Jesse, he won't even say David's name anymore. As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Now compare this with Jonathan. Not my kingdom, but yours. Whatever God's will is. But again, you hear Saul's selfish words. You and your kingdom. He, he says, Jonathan, look out for your own interest. This isn't love for his son. He's living vicariously through his son with the same selfish mentality that he had in his own kingdom. And he continues. He says, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Go get your buddy. I'm going to kill him. 
then Jonathan draws the line in the sand, and he says in verse 32, then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? He says, my friend David is innocent. And Saul, once again, does not react well. Saul hurled his spear at him, Jonathan, his own son. Wrap your mind around that for a second, to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. He picks up on Saul's subtle messages. <laughs> and he sees his heart. Now, what I want you to note here is Jonathan gets angry too. Verse 34, Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Now, both Saul and Jonathan get mad in this passage. We said last week, anger is an emotion. It's not inherently right or wrong, but Saul's anger is a selfish anger, whereas Jonathan's anger here is one for his friend's best interest. It's a righteous anger. So the question isn't, do I get angry? It's, what am I angry about, and does that anger control me? So like when I found in our new house that we just moved into that we're not going to get internet for a couple weeks, that's, that was not righteous anger coming out of me, right? That was just me wanting to stream that Netflix show now. That's what that was. But am I angry? Am I angry about what God gets angry about? God gets angry when his holy name gets drugged through the mud. God gets angry when there's injustice done to his children. So now Jonathan needs to let know, my dad is ticked and, and you've got to run. So here was their plan. Um, he says, I'm going to shoot some arrows and I'm going to send my servant. And if I say the first thing, I'll, if I say the look, the arrows are on this side of you, then that's going to mean you're safe. My dad's, my dad's cool. Or if I say the arrows are beyond you, then you've got to go. That's going to be the cue. And then look at what he says in verse 22. Then go. Why? For the Lord has sent you away. Yeah, on the surface, it's because of Saul's anger toward him. But ultimately, who's in control here? Who's in control of David's life? Who's sending him away? Who's putting him on the throne as king? God never relinquishes control of his throne. Amen? So he sends him away. And then we see the, the crying goodbye. Crying goodbye between two friends. Verse 41, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Now, I just have to ask the question. Like, you went through this whole elaborate arrow thing where it was like this side and that side. And it's like this whole, I needed like a chart to follow it. And then at the end, they walk up to each other and are talking. Like, why didn't you just why didn't you just do that? Like, why did you why the arrow thing? Why'd you gotta go Robin Hood on us here? You just talk to him. Hey, you gotta go, right? I didn't under, I don't know. I'm not inspired scripture, so we'll just go with it. But um yeah, and maybe they thought the coast was clear. I got so many questions for God when I get to heaven, and when I see him, I probably will ask none of them. Um we're gonna see here that um David has to say a hard goodbye to his closest friend in all the world, and then what happens? For the next six years, David's on the run. He finds himself in the wilderness. But what we see at this departure is that God, in his grace, gives David three things that he needs. The first one is clarity. What did he ask at the very beginning of all this? Am I wrong here? Am I guilty? And is Saul trying to kill me? And these questions have been answered. Now, this same shepherd will later pen the words, Your is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God tells David what he needs to know. He doesn't tell him everything. He doesn't give him the whole answer book. And isn't that, I mean, don't we want that? Like, I want God to tell me everything. All my questions answered right now, like the arrow thing. 
But he says, no, no I'm, not gonna, I'm, not, I'm gonna give you what you need. I'm gonna give you your manna for today. I'm gonna give you the clarity and direction for the next step. One step of faith at a time. And he gives that to David here. Number two, he's gonna give him peace. Last verse of chapter 20. Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Why? Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. He says, go in peace. Now, why can he have peace here? Everything is not going to be a bed of roses for David. We're going to read the rest of 1 Samuel. It's a rough road for David ahead in this wilderness. There's a deeper peace, and he says it's between you and I. There's a peace between David and Jonathan, and ultimately between him and his God. The kind of peace that God gives us, Philippians says, passes understanding. It transcends our circumstances, not because of our circumstances. It's going to be sourced in his God and the promises that he's made toward him. And ultimately, out of that, we're going to see the third gift is Jonathan's friendship. That we're in our deepest, darkest valleys to know that we're not there alone. God will send us people in our lives to walk that road with, and their friendship will continue. This friendship love, three things we want to see from this this morning and, and plug it into where we live. First of all, it's covenantal, not contractual. It's covenantal, not contractual. And what does that mean? Well, contractual love, like a contract, says this. How does this relationship benefit me? And we, and we write it out, and we say, if you don't deliver the goods, then I'm going to leave. And when we think we're loving people, oftentimes we just love what they give us. We just love how they make us feel. And we know that because when that stops, we leave. But David and Jonathan's love is not contractual, but it's covenantal. It's based on a promise they've made to be faithful and loyal to one another. This is similar language that you hear in a marriage vow. Better or worse, richer or poor, sickness or health, till death do us part. And they're in this. That's the kind of friendship love we see over and over again. Loved him as his own soul. It's a covenant, it's a promise of loyalty. Secondly, it's sacrificial, it's not self-serving. This, this friendship, it, it cost Jonathan, didn't it? He chose to go God's way with this, not try to take the throne for himself. He willingly lays down the crown, because that is not God's will. He gives up his throne, his own aspirations, his own dreams and hopes to be the king. And what do we see here is yielding to God's will. Unlike Saul, Jonathan says to the true king, says to the true king, not my will, but yours be done. And this is hope, by the way, for those of us that grew up in an unhealthy home, an abusive relationship potentially. What we see here with Jonathan is he does not follow in his father's footsteps, does he? Because Jesus is alive, there's a grace today that's greater than our sin. We can break what Philip Yancey calls the, the cycle of ungrace that we often see. The sins of the father become the sins of the son. But listen to me. If you had an unhealthy parenthood that you were eyeballing, it is not inevitable that that has to be you. We, that can terrify us as we start to look at parenthood ourselves. There's a grace that comes in and breaks the cycle. We see that it's sacrificial, not self-serving. This, this is not about Jonathan. He sacrifices. Then the third thing is... Um, and we'll read that verse later. The third thing is, is that it is active, not apathetic. 
It's active, not apathetic. Jonathan does not just simply say here, okay, David, you just take the crown, whatever. This isn't passive on his part. It's very active. It says in chapter 18, he loved David, but then he shows it by the way he acts. He empowers David, verse 4, when he gives him his clothing and his belt and his sword. And then he protects and advocates for David all through chapter 20. What's he doing? He defends David's innocence before his father. He walks with him through this crazy arrow plan, risks his own life in verse 33 for the sake of his friend. 1 John 3 says it this way, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Are you saying you love your friends? Are you just saying you love your friends, or are you actually showing it in the way you live? And this starts with just paying attention, right? You don't know the needs of other people if you don't have your eyeballs and ears open. And sometimes that means it's going to be a well-timed word of truth. Even sometimes truth and love that the other person might not want to hear. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Maybe it's bringing a meal. Maybe it's coming alongside with a project. Maybe it's just simply listening Maybe it's helping them hang a shower curtain at 11.40 at night in your new house when you just want to go to bed, hypothetically. (laughs) Don't say it, show it. And do you have a friend like this? Do you have a Jonathan or a David in your life? Someone who's committed, devoted, loyal to death. Some of us are like, no, thanks for asking. No one's been a friend like that to me. I don't want to talk about it. And we find ourselves like the little kid on the playground that nobody wants to play with. And it's been said that we've learned everything we need to learn about life in kindergarten. And I remember when I was was, um, student teaching at K-Beach Elementary, there was this little girl on the playground, one of the first days of school, and she said, no one's being a friend to me. She's crying, you know, and... Um, this is when not having some of those emotions intact was, was helpful. And I just, but no, I said, I said, um, who are you being a friend to? I said, I want you to look over there at the seesaw. See that little boy over there? It's really hard to seesaw by yourself. So why don't you go jump on the other end of that thing and hang out with him, be a friend to him. See, the call in this passage is not to demand a friend like David or Jonathan. It's a call to be a friend like David or Jonathan. God's going to provide everything we need, including community. But as you become a friend like that to someone else, what happens? You, you find a friend yourself. And so it's something as easy as after the service, you look around going, man, who's, who's over in the corner by themselves? Now, maybe that's an introvert that you just kind of need to leave alone and give some space to, right? Uh, but, but you approach and say, hey, my name's." You take that step. So this week, how can you be a friend like that to someone in your life? God's probably already pricking, pricking at you for that. Now, this is only possible. This is only possible. The only way we can be this kind of a selfless friend to somebody else is if it's built on the foundation of our friendship with Jesus. I don't mean to be trite by that. When Jesus was sitting in the upper room before his death, he turned to his disciples and he said these beautiful words to them. He said, no longer do I call you servants. You're not just my slaves to go out and do my bidding. He says, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. I'm inviting you into something much more intimate than just doing my bidding. He says, but I have called you friends. The beautiful truth is that Jesus wanted intimate relationship with his disciples, and that's no different than us who are his disciples today. And how did he prove that he wanted that kind of a relationship? He says two verses earlier, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his who? For his friends. He says, I show you that I have a relationship in the willingness I have to lay my life down 
for you. Now in the story, I'm Saul. Christ wanted friendship with me, but I'm chucking spears at him. I put him on that cross because of my sin. He wanted friendship with me. And again, this wasn't just some kind of passive, well, my dad told me to, or I'm God, so I have to love people, I have to die. God, Jesus wanted relationship with us. He wanted this sort of intimate friendship, and he knew that the only way to do it, the only way to reconcile us with the triune God was through his death, burial, and resurrection. There is no greater love that's been shown. Now, you might ask, well, what does this friendship with Jesus look like today? Because he's not visible. He's not a human like we see here in this room. So what does that look like? And oftentimes when people come to me and they want to talk about the distance they feel between themselves and the Lord, there's usually two questions I ask. And often it's one of these two factors that's causing the rift in the relationship. Number one, we talk about time are you spending time? I, the beauty of the honeymoon was to be able to spend time together just to create some space to get to know one another, to get to know how Jill likes her eggs, scrambled and fluffy, to get to know her heart, her fears, her dreams, her aspirations. There is no substitute for time spent together. Consistent time with Jesus, listening to him. How do we listen to him? Through his word. And we talk to him, real talk. He knows our heart anyway, so we can be free to tell him exactly what we're thinking, exactly what's on our mind. Don't we want that in, in, a, in a human friendship? we got to get to know God's heart, Jesus' heart, for us, and we won't know his heart if we're not in the word hearing it. How does he think of us? What are his promises to us? What's his heart? We get in the word. So that's the number one thing. I ask, are you spending consistent time with the Lord? And the other question I'll ask is, are you obeying him? Because Jesus, again, between those two verses we looked at earlier, he says this, you are my friends if, here's the conditional clause, if you do what I command. Do you hear the words there? If you are my friend, if you truly trust me, then you will obey me. So the question's not just are you spending time with the Lord, but as you spend time and the word reveals his heart for you in it and he calls you to live a certain way, are you obeying that? If you're not willing to lay those certain sins down and by the cross see victory over it, then of course you're not walking with him. We said it last week. If you're walking in darkness, you're not walking with God. And of course there's going to be distance in the relationship. But as we get to see his heart for us and that unfailing love that he has, what happens? He changes our heart from the inside out, and that obedience actually becomes our desire. That's the beauty of the gospel. It transforms us. Not just outward slavery, but inside-out transformation into a friendship. And we'll close with this quote from Jonathan Edwards. He says, let it be. Let it be our first love. May this be the, the greatest desire. May it be our first love to enter into an everlasting friendship with Christ that shall never be broken. The only way we can have healthy relationship out here is if we enter into the love relationship that Jesus won for us through his death and resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. In a world that we see nothing but brokenness and selfishness, we see contractual love, we see selfish love, we see passive love. Lord, we thank you that, that we have seen the greatest love that anyone's ever showed and what Christ did for us, and what he's doing in and through us, and that we see in that covenant of his blood that there is a loyal, faithful friend, closer than a brother, who will never leave us, never forsake us. Nothing can separate us from that kind of love. We thank you for the love of Jesus this morning. We thank you for the friendship that he's invited us into. 
Father, I pray that if there's someone in this room today that doesn't know that kind of friendship, that they'd enter into that now. If there's someone who's out of step, that there'd be confession and repentance, stepping back into that friendship, finding that restoration. And that, Father, we would become the kind of community that built out of that friendship with Christ, that we would become those kind of sacrificial, covenantal, active friends toward one another. That as the world looks at us, they will know we are Christians by the friendship love that we show toward one another and that more people might become friends of Christ. What a friend we have in Jesus, Lord. Maybe just in the rest of the space this time this morning, take our eyes off ourselves, take our eyes off us all, and put them squarely on the Lord Jesus. That we can take the burdens that we're feeling. I know there's people in this room today that the burdens are heavy and they're real. That they lay them at the foot of the cross of their friend. And to find him that's so faithful, that's so true. Whose love never fails, never runs out, never gives up on us. What a friend we have in Jesus. We just want to praise him together. It's in his beautiful name that we've been invited into with intimacy for. That we pray. Amen.